What I'm interested in is how do we fortify and protect vulnerable areas like schools. Schools should not be soft targets. There should be, I think, an armed police officer at schools, and there should be other infrastructure right. there to protect them. But most people don't die from a mass shooting. They die from one-off, one-on-one shootings. And those are being done by criminals, criminals that are being released by this legislature. There's a small number of people that commit most of the violent crime. If you incarcerate those people, the violent crime rates plummet because they're not able to be in society and commit more crimes. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Sacktown Talks. Today we're glad to be joined by Assemblyman Bill E. Saley. Bill, how's it going? Thanks for joining the program. Going good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're newly elected from Assembly District 63. We were just kind of talking about it. So it's a newly formed district in Riverside County. Kind of kind of tell us about your district. Yeah, so it's western Riverside County and it's got the cities of Norco, Corona, Lake Elsinore, Menifee, Canyon Lake, and parts of Riverside. It's sort of the old... Uh, Melissa Melendez seat mm-hmm. uh, mixed in with part of Sabrina's old seat, Sabrina Cervantes. Okay. So it's a hybrid. What's kind of the population of the district? Um, it's a lot of suburbia, um, a, a lot of, um, I would say, middle class uh, right. people. And uh, yeah, people with families, homes, and they have kids. Right. <laughs> a lot of people commuting. A lot of commuters, yeah, yeah. They're going to L.A. and Orange County for work and uh, sitting on the 91 freeway. Definitely. So uh, kind of what were you doing before you ran for, for the seat here? Uh, so my immediate prior profession was as a prosecutor. I worked uh, both as a deputy DA in Riverside and then at the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor. And I stepped down in 2018 to run for assembly the first time. Okay, so this is yeah. your second time running. This is my second time running and first time elected. Okay, so how did how did the first election go? You know, what did you learn from there that kind of oh, brought you to the? It was a very here? different race. The first time I ran was at a target seat, um, target race against Sabrina Cervantes, and it was uh, a pretty purple district. So it was it always mm-hmm. been a Republican seat. Right. It flipped blue, and then we were trying to flip it back. It was 2018 midterm, so. It was the Trump primary, so that was a complicated factor, complicating factor. Um, but uh, we did really well. But it was it was a tough target seat. And it just, I think, what the message was that year is that national politics kind of overshadowed um, sort of the state and local issues right. of the time. So interesting. So mm-hmm. you know, you had your your taste of, of an election, and then you were crazy enough to come back for more, kind of. Well, wasn't really planning on it. It was, uh, once it was redistricted, I, you know, became a safe, quote-unquote, safe Republican mm-hmm. seat, and then I was approached about running again, and so it was kind of a last-minute decision. So you're kind of saying you were working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then mm-hmm. you kind of stepped down to, to run, is that correct? Yeah, so under federal law, you can't run for partisan office um, as a federal employee. It's called okay. the Hatch Act. So you have to resign in order to run. Interesting. And so like, so for 2018, you, you step down, you lose, then what do you do? So I actually opened my own law firm. So I do have a law office in uh, Irvine. We do estate planning. It's called the Salian Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have, um, I'm a business owner now. Okay. So, and I still have it. <laughs> nice. So for the past four years, you've just been kind of, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of doing your own thing. On your has own it been time. four years, I guess. Yeah. 2019. Well, 2019, 2021, and then you had COVID. Yeah. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. I've been running the firm and dealing with the pandemic. Okay. So doing a lot of like kind of like a personal family trust things and like that? Yeah. So we do a little bit of litigation, but the primary scope is estate planning, probate, trust litigation. Um, we go to court a lot mm-hmm. for on different issues. So okay. I like to be in court. Yeah. <laughs> you like to be in court. You I like love to it. be in committee, right? Well, I don't know, like or <laughs> it's a duty. Man, what kind of what draw you to, to go to law school? Kind of where'd you go to college and and you know decide to go to law school? Yeah, so I I was first generation, so my parents came from Lebanon and they didn't go to college, mm-hmm. so it was just sort of a expectation that we would go to college because we had the opportunity. We're here in the U.S., and so it was always like you're going to go to college. Just wasn't sure what for. In high school, I was really um, drawn to law enforcement, mm-hmm. and I was a uh, I was like a volunteer explorer with the Corona Police Department, and I became really interested in becoming a police officer. Um, I would say my trajectory changed when I was about 16, and I um, was at a bank robbery, mm-hmm. witnessed a bank robbery. Oh, wow. I was present for it, and I became like the, the main witness in the case. And so that's when I learned what a federal prosecutor was and how you know the FBI works with the prosecutors right. and basically everything that happens after arrest in the court system and I became really interested in that and that's what inspired me to want to be a prosecutor. So I went to college at Cal Poly Pomona and then law school at Chapman okay. University. So you always stayed kind of close to home. Yeah, Southern California. It's not a bad place. Right. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. So then you, you graduate law school. You know, we were just kind of talking off camera. You graduated, what, 2010? 2010. As, as yeah. I recall, because I graduated from law school exact same time, it was mm-hmm. a horrible economy to get yeah. a job. So kind of how'd you get your foot to the, the DA's office there in Riverside County and start working there? So I was lucky in that I had actually before I was at DA's office, I worked in big law. Mm-hmm. So I had summered before graduation at Paul Hastings. Um, I was in their employment section. And they gave me an offer to join them after law school. So I was one of the few that had uh, an offer. You had a gig. And I had a gig. I think they deferred us by three months. That Uh, was when they started deferring people. Like normally you would start September or something. And they're like, oh, we're not going to start you till January. And they gave us a little stipend. But uh, I was fortunate to have a job and kept the job um, during the slowdown. So I was there for about two years before I left to be a DA. Two years. And then, you know, you you decided to kind of. I guess reassess your your priorities. Well, honestly, I never really wanted to go into big law, but it it's if you know anything about the practice of law, which you do, mm-hmm. but right. people might not know, um, it's a very snooty profession and industry. Yep. So, like, if you want to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, they want you to have big law experience because it's seen as like, well, that's what good law students do. They go to big law right. or they go clerk. So, I never really went there to want to work in big Mm -hmm. law it was something i knew i had to do in order to have opportunities in the future i always wanted to be a trial lawyer so i went in i did the two years and and i had a professor who told me he's like just do it you'll make a lot of money it's good for you it's good for the school and then after two years you go do whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) and that's what i did you'll never see daylight you'll go work 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 (laughs) yes big law i mean that could be a whole other podcast but it was a good experience um to have that skill set so your hope was always to be a u.s attorney that was your your dream i did yeah so i mean after um being a witness in that bank robbery Mm -hmm. and watching that and then i also externed during law school at the u.s attorney's office i i was that was my goal right so you do your kind of your stint then at the da's office and finally you get your opportunity at the u.s attorney's office uh kind of what was it like working at the u.s attorney and kind of 
what made you think like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want yeah. to be a, an assemblyman. U.S. Attorney is honestly the best job I ever had. Mm-hmm. Still is. Um, and I think most people who worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office would tell you the same thing. It is a true, truly special to be able to stand up in court and say that you represent the United States of America right. in court. You are the representative of the you country. You get like a little badge, don't you? Uh, no, not no. what you think. No. <laughs> you get like that ID card. Um, but you don't get a badge, but you are the official representative. And I was in the criminal division, so we did criminal cases. And you get to work with a spectrum of agencies and agents from FBI, ATF, IRS, um, U.S. Postal Inspectors, mm-hmm. you name it. And I was in the Riverside office, which was very small. We had about seven attorneys who covered all of San Bernardino and Riverside County. Right. Which is a huge area. A huge, massive area. Right. So Bigger than some states. The agents kind of shop the cases with you and say, hey, got a good case. And as the U.S. attorney, you kind of had say over which cases to take or not ca- mm-hmm. take. So you could really focus on areas you were interested in. I got to work on so many great cases, whether it was uh, drug drug trafficking cases that involved the cartel or going after doctors who were overprescribing opioids and killing people. Um, we did a lot of fraud cases, investment fraud, um, took a lot of guns off the street uh, from people who shouldn't have had them, uh, prohibited possessors or people selling guns to mm-hmm. people that shouldn't have guns. So the it was a, it was a variety of cases. One of the coolest cases I did was um, there was a helicopter that was smuggling illegal immigrants, and they uh, we were able to catch them right. and prosecute them. But um, it was very unique to see that there were people actually using helicopters to move people around. It was like very sophisticated. <laughs> so that was an interesting case. Um, so yeah, it's it, it was a very um, exciting. You get to work on great cases with great agents. You're in court all the time. Trials. Um, the reason I left is because I was watching what was happening to the state of California. And over the last decade now, uh, this failed criminal justice reforms where they have watered down the penalties and accountability for people committing crimes, um, really, to me, degrading the rule of law and uh, what it means to have a civilized society. And I could see the morale with my colleagues at the DA's office and police officers. They can't they were they basically weren't able to do their job anymore and the source of the problem was the legislature they were passing these really terrible quote-unquote reforms um and they're not prosecutors a lot of them weren't in law enforcement it's just their opinion and it opened the floodgates and now you can see the effects of whether it's uh quality of life crimes or drug crimes or violent crimes they're all up across the board and the quality of life in california is down so i felt an obligation to step down and run for office to be here at the Capitol. Yeah. You know, there's kind of a sense that like politics kind of dictates the work you would be able to do at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And we're seeing that kind of with DAs as well. Um, You know, if DAs want to prosecute the case or not, uh, you know, kind of leads to what the cops arrest people for. Um, Kind of, do you get a sense like you got to work in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I guess, under two different uh, paradigms. Um, kind of what, what did, did politics change, you know, your job at all or the scope of your work or what you were able to prosecute? So I would say that D.C. Um, you, DC ju- justice or Maine justice mm-hmm. is very different from the local U.S. Attorney's Office. I will tell you at the local level, it tends to be very apolitical. We have charging guidelines and we apply them mm-hmm. equally uh, irrespective of politics. And I think you see less politicized cases coming out of the local U.S. Attorney's offices. What's been politicized is Maine justice and the cases you see being filed in D.C., and uh, 
and how the FBI in D.C. is is dictating cases. So Maine justice, in my opinion, has been politicized. Luckily, I think a lot of your line prosecutors and U.S. attorneys, they try to keep it as non-political as right. possible. Okay. So like you never saw a shift or anything like I remember like when Trump mm-hmm. took over, there was like this big feeling of, oh, the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to totally change and how they prosecute things. But you didn't know. No, because that's not the culture of the local U.S. Attorney's offices. Um, but I do think that under Trump, it was the opposite. It was you saw a lot of people inside DOJ felt like it was OK to bring cases they normally wouldn't bring or pursue investigations they normally wouldn't pursue because it was Trump and mm-hmm. that he needed to be taken out. And that is really dangerous. And I think the Durham report just revealed the double standard that was used by FBI main justice to go after the frivolous Russia claims while insulating Hillary and her party from, from any right. scrutiny. Interesting. So now, you, you know, you're here in Sacramento. Um, you know, how's your first, you know, few months been here? Uh, interesting. Um, I would say that what I'm learning the most is how um, bills get made here and sort of this assembly line and these deadlines. And um, I think there's way too many bills, (laughs) way too many bills, and they're given very little consideration. And I don't, my impression is that this is not a healthy way to govern. So you're like a total outsider. You don't know anything about the process. You just come up, you just showed up. And uh, in, in, in December got sworn in and just kind of hit the ground running. Is hit the ground right? running, and I think we introduced almost three thousand bills. Mm-hmm. How many and did then you we have introduced yourself? Um, well, we have so many spot bills that aren't yeah. really substantive. Um, I would say we probably did about ten substantive bills here, give or take. Okay. And so, kind of, how are how are your bills going? What was what was the focus of your bill package? <laughs> the ten. I had a variety of bills. Yeah. Um, not good. Yeah. <laughs> not good. Uh, they're not, most of them are not alive anymore. Um, I had bills dealing with animals and animal shelters. It's oh, always law. yes, 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 yes. That was held in suspense. I had bills dealing with parental rights. That was not heard in committee. I had bills dealing with firearms and mm-hmm. reimposing the firearm enhancement for those who use a gun to commit a violent crime. That was killed in the public safety committee or unsafety committee, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Um, I had another bill that would have added some teeth to domestic violence restraining orders that was also killed in the public safety committee. So I had a I had a variety of bills dealing with public safety and, uh, you know, and other issues as well. But public safety is my background and that's right. sort of my focus area. Your passion. And, and I guess what committees are you sitting on? So I'm vice chair of judiciary and insurance. I sit on elections and privacy and I'm also on budget and rules. Okay. Nice. So six. So yeah, good, good, uh, good assignments there. Um, so kind of, you know, I just remember seeing like social media. I think you had an early public safety bill, and you were denied reconsideration. Yeah, which is which is rare. Um, <laughs> uh, so I hear you, that. Can I, can it was my tell first bill, this? so I don't know really? what's normal. What is it? <laughs> so can you? Uh, it's kind of like you're you're learning the on the ropes. You know, the school of hard knots. You're you know you're coming in hot, and you know I guess they're kind of trying to teach you a bit of a lesson. Kind of mm-hmm. what kind of what kind of have you learned? Kind of so far, kind of going through these early committees and kind of going through the. Well, I learned that the majority party is very sensitive and petty, mm-hmm. and that um, if you don't, uh, if you say something that doesn't fit their narrative or upsets them, they're they're willing to retaliate, and that that's what Mia Bonta did. She, you know, I this is a firearm enhancement bill. 
It's to go after people who use guns to hurt other people. And she didn't like the fact that I cited statistics from Oakland, that the majority of the victims of these crimes are minorities, black and brown people in her neighborhood that are being victimized and killed at the hands of these gun gun defendants. And she's not interested in, in locking them up. And I am. And I, you know, they're so focused on the prisoner side and that what the racial composition is of the people being charged, but I'm more focused on the on the on the victims and who those people are. So she got really upset that I pointed out those facts and what was happening in Oakland. And really, it wasn't even about her in Oakland. It was I, I was quoting a San Francisco Chronicle article, mm-hmm. but she was so upset. So and she um, denied reconsideration, um, but she wasn't alone. I mean, her Democrats backed her up. Right. So. That it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't. It's not like they would have approved on a reconsideration, but it's just a little window into how how sensitive they are, and um, and all it did was elevate the bill because mm-hmm. they got media coverage for being denied reconsideration. Right. That's all I saw on Twitter. <laughs> it was yeah. Like, Saley denied. Like. So I think something <laughs> the majority should keep in mind is that the more they they lash out or um, try to penalize us, I think it just elevates our. Our message, yeah, and so, the other one is so, this, this Bowie's law. You're getting a lot yeah. of attention on this. What is what was Bowie's law? It's, it kind of seemed like it got kind of misunderstood or kind of back. Well, I don't think there's any attention. misunderstanding. Yeah. So Bowie was a three month old puppy in the LA County shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a rescue that wanted to adopt him, and they reached out. Um, and by the time someone at the county read the email or read the request, they already killed him. And uh, the county said it was a mistake, it was oversight. And so talking to the rescue groups, I, I said there should be a, a basic standard where before they euthanize a adoptable pet, that they at least give 72 hours notice to the public and rescues. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Just put them on your website, say this dog is in danger of being euthanized, and give at least 72 hours notice so people can adopt or foster, which is supposed to be the goal. Right. Um, and the shelters resisted this from the very beginning. Every shelter in the state opposed it because they don't want oversight and they don't want transparency. So there's a lot of gaslighting about what the bill does or doesn't do. But the bill passed unanimously through um, BMP committee, and then it was uh, held in suspense. And was there like a cost to it? or There was a cost because it also asked for a study mm-hmm. um, to study to do a state study on how we can help the shelters and get to a no-kill, right. become a no-kill state. So it was a couple hundred thousand dollars, but we offered to take the study out to bring the cost down. So it wasn't, I don't think that's the reason. Right. So it was held in suspense for whatever reason, but as people know, nothing's ever dead. So we have a plan to bring it back this session right. and it's coming back. Yeah. Bowie's law. Bowie's Bowie law. You know what? They killed the Bowie day. in secret yeah. and yeah. Uh, they tried to kill his bill in secret and uh, not going to happen. Yeah. You're not going to let it happen. Um, so kind of, you know, We've seen a lot about gun gun control, gun safety, a lot of mass shootings. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, the San Bernardino shooting, uh, what is it, four or five years ago was a big, big thing here in California. You obviously uh, were what, in the U.S. Attorney's Office when that happened. Is that yes, right? Yes, I was in the Riverside office yeah. when it happened. So kind of what, what is your experience or, and kind of your boots on the ground experience kind of seeing and kind of what you're seeing here in the legislature? How, you know, how can we marry, you know, the gun control and, you know, actually stopping these mass shootings? Yeah, I mean, obviously, terrorist acts are different than than like the um, some of the shootings that are happening, which seem to be uh, by some disturbed people. The terrorist thing is a very intentional and premeditated act. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think we're seeing a lot is is people in society who are 
mentally unstable and then they're um, committing acts of violence either for attention or to get back at people or whatever sick thing is going on in their head. Um, it's a very difficult issue. Um, and I do think we all agree that there needs to be safeguards in place for people who are mentally ill or um, are prohibited from having guns to make sure they don't have them. But I don't think you're ever going to be in a place where we will ever have 100% no gun violence. It's just a, it's a part of the society we live in. What I'm interested in is how do we fortify and protect vulnerable areas like schools. Schools should not be soft targets. There should be, I think, an armed police officer at schools, and there should be other infrastructure right. there to protect them. Um, but most people don't die from a mass shooting. They die from one-off, one-on-one shootings. And those are being done by criminals, criminals that are being released by this legislature. There's a small number of people that commit most of the violent crime. It's a very small number of people. If you incarcerate those people, the violent crime rates plummet because they're not able to be in society and commit more crimes. So if you really care about gun violence, why I mentioned two-thirds of the victims of gun violence are minorities, Mm -hmm. you would go after the people committing gun violence. So, But I know they like to focus on mass shootings because it drives their agenda, which is gun control. I mean, the party, let's be honest, the Democrats, if they could, they'd get rid of the Second Amendment. But that's not going anywhere. So I actually want to focus on how do we make it better. And I think the way you make it better is... You prosecute people who shouldn't have guns. You have the, the APPS program where the attorney general has a list of people that are prohibited from having guns, but I think they have a backlog of over 20,000 mm-hmm. cases there. That's the number one focus. Let's get guns out of the people that shouldn't have them. And then we can, um, I think, fortify soft targets so that way it's not easy to just walk on a school and shoot people. Right. Kind of. I guess how, how do you balance the, the issue of you know being... Um, you know, tough on crime, you mm-hmm. know, putting people in jail who, who do violent crimes and also having kind of this issue of mass incarceration. Like, you know, I don't know what mass ten, incarceration is. I don't know ago, what that means. Yeah. Ten years ago, what we had the largest prison population in, I think, in the world. Well, we also have um, the largest state. We, we also have a population of we have more people than any other state. We had about 160, 180,000 people in prison out of 35, 38 million. So I don't look at mass incarceration. I look at individual cases. So every person incarcerated is there because they were either convicted of a serious crime or they pled guilty to a charge. We don't go around and round people up and throw them in mass. That's not the way it works. There's discretion exercised by the prosecutor whether to charge the case, and there's a judge that oversees it to make sure that it's fair and the law is applied equally and fairly. So this whole narrative of like mass incarceration locking people up, it's just... It's, it's cover and it's smoke for an excuse to let people out of prison. And I don't agree with it. And I, it's one of the biggest issues I'm going to fight up here. There is no mass incarceration. We incarcerate people who commit crimes. If someone is breaking the law or someone is being charged who's not guilty, then we should talk about that. And they should not be in prison. But they're not the victims. The prisoners are not the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of what are your thoughts kind of on, on, I guess, rehabilitation for prisoners, like the sentencing, lengths of sentences, things like that? Rehabilitation should be secondary to punishment. That's my belief. If you commit a crime, you rape someone, you stab someone, you kill someone, mm-hmm. first and foremost, you need to go to prison and keep the rest of society safe. Period. End of story. If then you can be rehabilitated, by all means, do it. Do it while you're in prison. Um, but you know, they want to take punishment out of the equation and just do rehabilitation. 
I'm sorry to tell you, not everyone is capable of being rehabilitated. I've had three officers, uh, you know, killed in my district. I had one officer who was shot in the face during a traffic stop um, by someone, a third striker. That guy's not going to be rehabilitated. He's a bad person, and he needs to be locked up to keep the rest of society safe. So I think rehabilitation is secondary to punishment. Interesting. So as you said earlier, you're on a budget sub. We're getting here yeah. into budget season. Kind of what budget sub are you on? Kind of what are the things sub you're three. looking Sub three. Sub three, so it's transportation, it's uh, natural resources, mm-hmm. energy. Okay, so what are, what are the, some of the things you're, you're looking at and kind of – um, kind of overseeing in this budget as, you know, we got, we got to trim, what, $30 billion? Mm-hmm. It's going to be more than that. Um, so budget's interesting. Again, it's my first time up here. I'm on budget sub three. Um, we don't really talk much about the budget. Mm-hmm. It's it's We get presentations from the administration on different programs or whatnot. But my impression is that the chairs just make whatever budget decisions on their own. It's not really much up for debate or discussion. No, they're not. <laughs> so really our role on budget is kind of oversight and ask questions on the different programs that are being presented to the legislature. And that's that's sort of my focus there. But they have a big problem. They have they're gonna be over thirty billion dollars in the hole this year. Um, they are planning to just basically cover it up with some accounting gimmicks and push the kick the can down the road. But according to LAO, this is this is not going away, and all they're going to do is create a bigger deficit for next year. So they're going to build in structural deficits for the right. next few years. So they either need to cut or they're just going to be out of money. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, kind of what what are some of the eye-opening things? You Like you're new to this, so you're hearing these presentations, you're looking at all this stuff for the first time, you're obviously an educated person. So what, yeah. what are some of the things that surprised you so far looking over to the budget? How unserious people are in, in the legislature about issues. I think it's just a lot of platitudes and, um, you know, good intentions, but there really isn't much discussion or debate on, on bills. And especially House of Origin, it's like bills are – push through just because they're your colleague and you want to be nice to them. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very unserious process. It's a very superficial process and it's a very rushed process by design. So we have 600 bills that we have to either uh, approve or deny by next Friday. They're saving them all for next mm-hmm. week. So we could all be in a pressurized room and just push the bills through so we can go home. So this is the problem. I mean, you had members upset with what Tennessee did to those members with a supermajority. Um, we have a supermajority in California. It's not healthy. You have a party that I think is way too, um, you know, they're way too powerful. I don't think any party should have that much power. And they exert their power to to drive their agenda, and there really isn't much debate or mm-hmm. opposition. So you said you had 600 bills. How are you personally preparing to go kind of go through all those I bills? vote no. I vote no unless there's a re- unless I'm com- unless I'm convinced there's merit or a good reason to approve a bill. Do you, do you personally go through all 600 and figure out what... My staff, so we have, uh, no, I don't personally go through no. all 600, but there's some bills that obviously uh, warrant more attention than others. There's a lot of bills that really don't do much. Right, there a lot like of spots, things like spots, that. Spots, right. task forces, statements, things like that. Um, obviously, based on what we hear from our constituents or industry, there's some bills that mm-hmm. get more attention than others. Um and my, my staff goes through them. We also have caucus staff um, that does analysis on every bill. Um, a lot of them are vetted, you know, during committee. So that's when they get a they get a report and a recommendation. So a lot of times we look at the caucus report. We look at what our colleagues did on the committee, 
and then I'll look at the bill. And then my staff gives me a recommendation, and then I make the ultimate yeah. decision. Do you know how many bills you voted yes for so far? <laughs> no, I don't keep no. tabs. <laughs> I voted for a few bills. You did? Okay. <laughs> but most, we haven't voted on that many bills yet. I okay. mean, yeah. well, they're saving them all for well, next week. We'll see you next week. We'll see yeah. what your percentage is. Yeah, I either, if, if I don't know enough about it or I haven't studied it or I'm not convinced, I either just vote no or don't vote. Lay off. Right. Um, I make sure it's a bill I, if I vote yes, I do know the bill and I do read the bill and I do make sure it's something yeah. I agree with. Um, you know, kind of being a new member, have you, you know, did you come in kind of, I guess, knowing any of the members or kind of, you know, have any mentors among the uh, Republican uh, members there? Yeah. So I, I, you know, having run in 2018 and now I knew some of the um, more senior members, so obviously James Gallagher, mm-hmm. I know him really well and Heath Flora and Vince Fong. So I just got to know them really well during the course of the campaign. Um, and then there's a large freshman uh, right. class. So Greg Wallace is in the neighboring district, so I know I know him pretty well. We got to know each other during the the course of the campaign as well. Um, and I would say the new freshman class, both Democrat and Republican, um, is very collegial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did orientation together. Um, actually, like mo- most of them personally, like I may not like their politics, <laughs> but a so lot. So you of are them- making friends. Yeah, you know what? I do think, you know, you, when we're on the floor, it's right. it's one thing. But off the floor, I think we do try to be collegial and respectful and nice to each other. But but that's okay. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And I always make a point of I never attack the author or the person. I attack, I'll, I'll attack a bill or a policy. Right. But I, I make a concerted effort not to attack a particular person unless they attack me first. <laughs> <laughs> man so uh budget season's coming up uh kind of what what you're, you're gonna have the marathon floor session kind of you know what are you looking forward to in kind of the second half of this uh legislative session i'm looking forward to see how bad bills are gonna die <laughs> i want to see how it plays out i i hear it through the house of origin a lot of stuff just gets through because like i said it's your colleagues right. and then once we're considering the other house's bills it's not as much um consideration or right. or a deference that second suspense file the second yeah. suspense file or even in committees so i'm interested to see how that shakes out um you have potentially a new speaker coming in uh revis mm-hmm. not potentially he's i think he's he's done he's got to be the new breaking speaker news. <laughs> that's all breaking news we voted on it in right. december so barring something unexpected he will be the new speaker right. um so it'll be interesting to see how he sort of um leads you're going to have new leadership and whether that's going to change up these committees or chairs or anything. Yeah. So what are you hearing? Are, are they going to, what do you think? I don't, they don't tell us much. <laughs> they don't tell us right. much. Um, no, like I've met with Robert. I actually find him to be a very um, personable, mm-hmm. pleasant person. I have no idea what he's going to do. He doesn't tell me. Yeah, so, tell you, uh, but I would hope that Gallagher he would at least Gallagher. No, we don't yeah. know. We don't know. Um, I don't think you become a speaker by like telling people what, everything you're going to do. Right. <laughs> so you probably got to hold some things close to the chest. Um, I would hope at the minimum there'll be some leadership changes in the committees, mm-hmm. yeah, particularly sure. particularly public safety. Yeah. I mean, please. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't remember a year where public safety committee has been a, a like kind of must see TV, except for this year. It's been it's been very interesting to watch. Uh, 
you know, today we're having a... Well, they're the enemy of the public. I mean, literally their job is to keep the public safe, and any bill that attempts to do that, they kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, and today they're doing the task force uh, on the... On fentanyl? Fentanyl. Yeah. Did you have any fentanyl bills or any... Um, I did not directly have any fentanyl bills. Um, but, I mean, it's frustrating because they don't want to do anything that will increase prison time or punishment for people selling, dealing, killing others with fentanyl. Right. So then how do you solve a problem? I guess... Without a deterrent, how do you solve the problem? That's a great question. They're talking about it today. I don't know. But they want to focus on harm reduction. They want to focus on addiction. The problem with fentanyl is it's not your normal drug. This isn't something you get addicted to and then you die later. This is like you think you're taking something you're not. You think you're, you're taking a Percocet or an Adderall or whatever, and it's laced with fentanyl, and you will die. One pill will kill. This isn't recreational drug right. use. And this is not like somebody taking heroin and no overdose. No, right. this is you're not. You don't even know what you're taking. That's why they call it poisoning, because you're being poisoned. You're given something you don't know what's in it, and one pill can kill. Right. So, I believe recreational drug use is over. Like back in the day, where you could experiment and try drugs, and maybe it was a phase or whatever. That's gone. You can't do that anymore because you really could die. Um, so I just think it needs to be treated differently. And I think people who deal drugs should be put on notice that, Hey, the drugs you're dealing could be laced with fentanyl. And if you deal it and someone dies, you're going to have an enhanced punishment. It was interesting. Like when we were kids, there was like a big push, you know, I know, you know, they had that just say no stuff, but I remember they'd come out and like they'd have commercials on TV, like, don't do drugs, like, you're going to die. <laughs> like, you don't see that anymore. It was exaggerated. There's no, like, public funding or public information no. out there to kind of... Uh, I had the D.A.R.E. program. Right, D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E. Right. to say no. People, people going to schools, like, saying, hey, kids, don't do drugs, be careful. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why, but they... It's almost like it's okay to use drugs now. It's sort of the message, I think, that's being told to kids. Except tobacco. Tobacco, absolutely not. We have to do everything we can to keep tobacco out of the hands of kids. But uh, marijuana, whatever, yeah. Yeah, it was fentanyl, we whatever. A, we had a, a Rand researcher on, and we kind of talked about fentanyl and some of these other stuff. And and you know the statistics on some of the stuff is small. And you know you talk about alcohol, which is another substance, and you know a lot of people die from alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know no one wants to talk about regulating alcohol or people's use of alcohol. Well, so, they tried. It's yeah. called prohibition. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> very, very interesting how we, we pick or choose what substances are, are good or bad uh, for you. So. It's true, but I don't think it's good in general for people to use drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so does that mean we go lock up everyone that uses drugs? No. But I think you work on both the supply and the demand simultaneously. The demand side is what we're talking about, the dare. So educating people and, you know, kids to not use drugs lowers the demand but also you got to deal with the supply you cannot let this stuff get over the border and you can't let it be ubiquitous in our community and you cannot have basically free for all like okay deal drugs and it's just gonna be a slap on the wrist so you have to do all yeah well and harm reduction is the new thing it's terrible it's just you know focusing on keeping people safe while they're using drugs um i don't want to help people use drugs i want to help them get off of drugs yeah yeah well, definitely an interesting perspective, yes. a, a fresh look here in Sacramento. Sure. Bill, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, very interesting and uh, looking forward to see what you got coming up here on the second half. See uh, see if uh, what you think comes true here. So. Absolutely. Thanks for having yeah. me All on right. anytime. Definitely.